Part Two, Chapter Twelve of the Daisy Chain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Daisy Chain by Charlotte Mary Young. Part Two, Chapter Twelve. The heart may ache, but may not burst. Heaven will not leave thee, nor forsake. Christian Year Hector and Tom finished their holidays by a morning's shooting at the Grange, Dr. May promising to meet them and let them drive him home. Maida was out when he arrived, and repairing to the library, he found Mr. Rivers sitting by a fire, though it was early in September, with the newspaper before him, but not reading. He looked depressed and seemed much disappointed at having heard that George and Flora had accepted some further invitation in Scotland and did not intend to return for another month. Dr. May spoke cheerfully of the hospitality and kindness they had met, but failed to enliven him, and, as if trying to assign some cause for his vexation, he lamented over fogs and frosts, and began to dread an October in Scotland for Flora, almost as if it were the Arctic regions. He grew somewhat more animated in praising Flora and speaking of the great satisfaction he had in seeing his son married to so admirable a person. He only wished it could be the same with his daughter. "'You are a very unselfish father,' said Dr. May. "'I cannot imagine you without your little fairy.' "'It would be hard to part,' said Mr. Rivers, sighing. "'Yet I should be relieved to see her in good hands, "'so pretty and engaging as she is, and something of an heiress. "'With our dear Flora she is secure of a happy home when I am gone,' but still I should be glad to have seen, and he broke off thoughtfully. She is so sensible that we shall see her make a good choice, said Dr. May, smiling. That is, if she choose at all, for I do not know who is worthy of her. I am quite indifferent as to fortune, continued Mr. Rivers. She will have enough of her own. Enough not to be dependent, which is the point, said Dr. May, though I should have few fears for her anyway. It would be a comfort, harped on Mr. Rivers, dwelling on the subject, as if he wanted to say something, if she were only safe with a man who knew how to value her and make her happy. Such a young man as your Norman, now, I have often thought. Dr. May would not seem to hear, but he could not prevent himself from blushing as crimson as if he had been the very Norman, as he answered, going on with his own speech, as if Mr. Rivers's had been unmade. She is the brightest little creature under the sun, and the sparkle is down so deep within, that, however it may turn out, I should never fear for her happiness. Flora is my great reliance, proceeded Mr. Rivers. Her aunt, Lady Leonora, is very kind, but somehow she does not seem to suit with Meta. Oh, ho, thought the doctor. Have you made that discovery, my good friend? The voices of the two boys were heard in the hall, explaining their achievements to Maida, and Dr. May took his departure, Hector driving him, and embarking in a long discourse on his own affairs as if he had quite forgotten that the doctor was not his father, and going on emphatically, in spite of the absence of mind now and then betrayed by his auditor, who, at Dr. Spencer's door, exclaimed, "'Stop, Hector, let me out here!' "'Thank you,' and presently brought out his friend into the garden." 
and sat down on the grass talking low and earnestly over the disease with which mr rivers had been so long affected for though dr may could not perceive any positively unfavorable symptom he had been rendered vaguely uneasy by the unusual heaviness and depression of manner so long did they sit conversing that blanche was sent out primed with an impertinent message that two such old doctors ought to be ashamed of themselves for sitting so late in the dew dr spencer was dragged in to drink tea and the meal had been just merrily concluded when the doorbell rang and a message was brought in the carriage from the grange sir miss rivers would be much obliged if you would come directly there said dr may looking at dr spencer as if to say i told you so in the first triumph of professional sagacity but the next moment exclaiming poor little maida he hurried away a gloom fell on those who remained for besides their sympathy for maida and their liking for her kind old father there was that one unacknowledged heartache which though in general bravely combated lay in wait always ready to prey on them hector stole round to sit by margaret and dr spencer muttered this will never do and sent tom to fetch some papers lying on his table whence he read them some curious accounts that he had just received from his missionary friends in india they were interested but in a listening mood that caused a universal start when the bell again sounded this time james reported that the servant from the grange said his master was very ill he had brought a letter to post for mr george rivers and here was a note for miss ethel it was the only note ethel had ever received from her father and contained these few words dear e i believe this attack will be the last come to maida and bring my things r m ethel put her hands to her forehead it was as if she had been again plunged into the stunned dream of misery of four years ago and her sensation was of equal bewilderment and uselessness but it was but for a moment the next she was in a state of overbustle and eagerness she wanted to fly about and hasten to help maida and could hardly obey the word and gesture by which margaret summoned her to her side dear ethel you must calm yourself or you will not be of use i i can't be of any use oh if you could go if flora were but here but i must go margaret i will put up your father's things said dr spencer in a soothing tone the carriage cannot be ready in a moment so that there will be full time mary and miss bracy prepared ethel's own goods which she would otherwise have forgotten and margaret meanwhile detained her by her side trying to calm and encourage her with gentle words of counsel that might hinder her from giving way to the flurry of emotion that had seized her and prevent her from thinking herself certain to be useless adams was to drive her thither in the gig and it presently came to the door dr spencer wrapped her up well in cloaks and shawls and spoke words of kindly cheer in her ear as she set off the fresh night air blew pleasantly on her the stars glimmered in full glory overhead and now and then her eye was caught by the rocket-like track of a shooting star orion was rising slowly far in the east and bringing to her mind the sailor boy under the southern sky if indeed he were not where sun and stars no more are the light it was strange that the thought came more as soothing than as acute pain she could bear to think of him thus in her present frame as long as she had not to talk of him under those solemn stars the life everlasting seemed to overpower the sense of this mortal life 
and Ethel's agitation was calmed away. The old cedar tree stood up in stately blackness against the sky, and the lights in the house glanced behind it. The servants looked rather surprised to see Ethel, as if she were not expected, and conducted her to the great drawing-room, which looked the more desolate and solitary, from the glare of lamplight, falling on the empty seats which Ethel had lately seen filled with a glad home party. She was looking round, thinking whether to venture up to Meta's room, and there summon Belair's, when Maida came gliding in, and threw her arms round her. Ethel could not speak, but Maida's voice was more cheerful than she had expected. "'How kind of you, dear Ethel!' "'Papa sent for me,' said Ethel. "'He is so kind. Can Margaret spare you?' "'Oh, yes. But you must leave me. You must want to be with him.' "'He never lets me come in when he has these attacks,' said Maida. "'If he only would. But will you come up to my room?' that is nearer is papa with him yes maida wound her arms round ethel and led her up to her sitting-room where a book lay on the table she said that her father had seemed weary and torpid and had sat still until almost their late dinner hour when he seemed to bethink himself of dressing and had risen she thought he walked weakly and rather tottering and had run to make him lean on her which he did as far as his own room door there he had kissed her, and thanked her, and murmured a word-like blessing. She had not, however, been alarmed, until his servant had come to tell her that he had another seizure. Ethel asked whether she had seen Dr. May since he had been with her father. She had, but Ethel was surprised to find that she had not taken in the extent of his fears. She had become so far accustomed to these attacks, that, though anxious and distressed, she did not apprehend more than a few days weakness and her chief longing was to be of use she was speaking cheerfully of beginning her nursing to-morrow and of her great desire that her papa would allow her to sit up with him when there was a slow reluctant movement of the lock of the door and the two girls sprang to their feet as dr may opened it and ethel read his countenance at once not so maida how is he may i go to him cried she not now my dear said dr may putting his hand on her shoulder in a gentle detaining manner that sent a thrill of trembling through her frame though she did not otherwise move she only clasped her hands together and looked up into his face he answered the look yes my dear the struggle is over ethel came near and put her arm round maida's waist as if to strengthen her as she stood quite passive and still Dr. May seemed to think it best that all should be told, but though intently watching Maida, he directed his words to his own daughter. Thank heaven it has been shorter and less painful than I had dared to hope. Maida tried to speak, but could not bring out the words, and, with an imploring look at Ethel, as if to beg her to make them clear for her, she inarticulately murmured, Oh, why did you not call me? I could not. He would not let me. His last conscious word to me was not to let you see him suffer. Maida wrung her clasped hands together in mute anguish. Dr. May signed to Ethel to guide her back to the sofa, but the movement seemed so far to rouse her that she said, I should like to go to bed. Right, the best thing, said Dr. May, and he whispered to Ethel, Go with her, but don't try to rouse her. Don't talk to her. Come back to me presently. 
He did not even shake hands with Meta, nor wish her good night, as she disappeared into her own room. Belair's undressed her, and Ethel stood watching, till the young head, under the load of sorrow, so new to it, was laid on the pillow. Belair's asked her if she would have a light. "'No, no, thank you. The dark and alone. Good night,' said Meta. Ethel went back to the sitting-room where her father was standing at the window, looking out into the night. He turned as she came in, folded her in his arms, and kissed her forehead. "'And how is the poor little dear?' he asked. "'The same,' said Ethel. "'I can't bear to leave her alone and to have said nothing to comfort her.' "'It is too soon as yet,' said Dr. May. "'Her mind has not taken it in. I hope she will sleep all night.' and have more strength to look at it when she wakens. She was utterly unprepared. I could not make her understand me, said Dr. May. And, oh, Papa, what a pity she was not there! It was no sight for her till the last few minutes, and his whole mind seemed bent on sparing her. What tenderness it has been! Must we leave her to herself all night? Better so, said Dr. May. She has been used to loneliness, and to thrust companionship on her would be only harassing. Ethel, who scarcely knew what it was to be alone, looked as if she did not understand. I used to try to force consolation on people, said Dr. May, but I know, now, that it can only be done by following their bent. You have seen so many sorrows, said Ethel. I never understood till I felt, said Dr. May. Those few first days were a lesson. "'I did not think you knew what was passing,' said Ethel. "'I doubt whether any part of my life is more distinctly before me than those two days,' said Dr. May. "'Flora coming in and out, and poor Alan sitting by me. "'But I don't believe I had any will. "'I could no more have moved my mind than my broken arm. "'And I verily think, Ethel, that, but for that merciful torpor, I should have been frantic. "'It taught me never to disturb grief. "'And what shall we do?' You must stay with her till Flora comes. I will be here as much as I can. She is our charge till they come home. I told him, between the spasms, that I had sent for you, and he seemed pleased. If only I were anybody else! Dr. May again threw his arm round her and looked into her face. He felt that he had rather have her, such as she was, than anybody else, and together they sat down and talked of what was to be done, and what was best for Meta, and of the solemnity of being in the house of death. Ethel felt and showed it so much in her subdued, awestruck manner, that her father felt checked whenever he was about to return to his ordinary manner, familiarized, as he necessarily was, with the like scenes. It drew him back to the thought of their own trouble, and their conversation recurred to those days, so that each gained a more full understanding of the other, and they at length separated, certainly with the more peaceful and soft feelings for being in the abode of mourning. Belair's promised to call Ethel, to be with her young lady as early as might be, reporting that she was sound asleep, and sleep continued to shield her till past her usual hour, so that Ethel was up and had been with Dr. May before she was summoned to her, and then she found her half-dressed and hastening that she might not make Dr. May late for breakfast and in going to his patients. There was an elasticity in the happily constituted young mind that could not be entirely struck down, nor deprived of power of taking thought for others. 
yet her eyes looked wandering and unlike themselves, and her words, now and then, altered, as if she was not sure what she was doing or saying. Ethel told her not to mind. Dr. Spencer would take care of the patients, but she did not seem to recollect, at first, who Dr. Spencer was, nor to care for being reminded. Breakfast was laid out in the little sitting-room. Ethel wanted to take the trouble off her hands, but she would not let her. She sat behind her urn and asked about tea or coffee quite accurately, in a low, subdued voice that nearly overcame Dr. May. When the meal was over and she had rung the bell and risen up as if to her daily work, she turned round with that piteous, perplexed air and stood for a moment as if confused. "'Cannot we help you?' said Ethel. "'I don't know. Thank you. But, Dr. May, I must not keep you from other people.' "'I have no one to go to this morning,' said Dr. May. "'I am ready to stay with you, my dear.' Meta came closer to him and murmured, "'Thank you.' The breakfast things had, by this time, been taken away, and Meta, looking to see that the door had shut for the last time, said in a low voice, "'Now tell me.' Dr. May drew her down to sit on the sofa beside him, and, in his soft, sweet voice, told her all that she had wished to learn of her father's last hours, and was glad to see showers of quiet, wholesome tears drop freely down, but without violence, and she scarcely attempted to speak. There was a pause at the end, and then she said gently, "'Thank you, for it all. Dear Papa,' and she rose up and went back to her room. "'She has learned to dwell apart,' said Dr. May, much moved. "'How beautiful she bears up,' said Ethel." It has been a life which, as she has used it, has taught her strength and self-dependence in the midst of prosperity. Yes, said Ethel, she has trained herself by her dread of self-indulgence and seeking after work. But, oh, what a break-up it is for her! I cannot think how she holds up. Shall I go to her? I think not. She knows the way to the only comforter. I am not afraid of her after those blessed tears. Dr. May was right. Meta presently returned to them in the same gentle, subdued sadness, enfolding her, indeed, as a flower weighed down by mist, but not crushing nor taking away her powers. It was as if she were truly upheld, and thankful to her friends as she was, she did not throw herself on them in utter dependence or self-abandonment. She wrote needful letters, shedding many tears over them, and often obliged to leave off to give the blinding weeping its course, but refusing to impose any unnecessary task upon Dr. May's lame arm. All that was right, she strove to do. She saw Mr. Charles Wilmot, and was refreshed by his reading to her, and when Dr. May desired it, she submissively put on her bonnet and took several turns with Ethel in the shrubbery, though it made her cry heartily to look into the downstairs rooms. And she lay on the sofa at last, owning herself strangely tired, she did not know why, and glad that Ethel should read to her. By and by she went to dress for the evening, and came back, full of the tidings that one of the children in the village had been badly burned. It occupied her very much. She made Ethel promise to go and see about her tomorrow, and sent Belairs at once with every comfort that she could devise. On the whole, those two days were to Ethel a peaceful and comfortable time. She saw more than usual of her father, and had such conversations with him as were seldom practicable at home, 
and that chimed in with the unavowed care which hung on their minds. While Maida was a most sweet and loving charge, without being a burden, and often saying such beautiful things in her affectionate resignation, that Ethel could only admire and lay them up in her mind. Dr. May went backwards and forwards, and brought good accounts of Margaret and fond messages. He slept at the Grange each night, and Maida used to sit in the corner of the sofa and work, or not, as best suited her, while she listened to his talk with Ethel, and now and then herself joined. George Rivers's absence was a serious inconvenience in all arrangements, but his sister dreaded his grief as much as she wished for his return, and often were the posts and the journeys reckoned over without a satisfactory conclusion as to when he could arrive from so remote a part of Scotland. At last, as the two girls had finished their early dinner, the butler brought in word that Mr. Norman May was there. Meta at once begged that he would come in, and Ethel went into the hall to meet him. He looked very wan, with the dark rings round his eyes a deeper purple than ever, and he could hardly find utterance to ask, How is she? As good and sweet as she can be, said Ethel warmly, but no more, for Meta herself had come to the dining-room door and was holding out her hand. Norman took it in both his, but could not speak. Meta's own soft voice was the first. I thought you would come. He was so fond of you. Poor Norman quite gave way, and Maida was the one to speak gentle words of soothing. There is so much to be thankful for, she said. He has been spared so much of the suffering Dr. May feared for him, and he was so happy about George. Norman made a great effort to recover himself. Ethel asked for Flora and George. It appeared that they had been on an excursion when the first letter arrived at Clembrocken and thus had received both together in the evening on their return. George had been greatly overcome, and they had wished to set off instantly, but Lady Glenbrocken would not hear of Flora's travelling night and day, and it had at length been arranged that Norman Ogilvy should drive Norman across the country that evening to catch the mail for Edinburgh, and he had been on the road ever since. George was following with his wife more slowly, and would be at home tomorrow evening. Meantime, he sent full authority to his father-in-law to make arrangements. Ethel went to see the Burns child, leaving Meta to take her walk in the garden under Norman's charge. He waited on her with a sort of distant reverence for a form of grief, so unlike what he had dreaded for her, when the first shock of the tidings had brought back to him the shattered, bewildered feelings to which he dared not recur. To dwell on the details was, to her, a comfort, knowing his sympathy and the affection there had been between him and her father, nor had they parted in such absolute brightness as to make them unprepared for such a meeting as the present. The cloud of suspense was brooding lower and lower over the May family, and the need of faith and submission was as great with them as with the young orphan herself. Norman said little, but that little was so deep and fervent that after a time Meta could not help saying, when Ethel was seen in the distance, and their talk was nearly over. Oh, Norman, these things are no mirage. It is the world that is the mirage, he answered. Ethel came up, and Dr. May also, in good time for the post. He was obliged to become very busy, using Norman for his secretary, till he saw his son's eyes so heavy that he remembered the two nights that he had been up and ordered him to go home and go to bed as soon as tea was over. May I come back tomorrow? Why, yes, I think you may. 
No, no, he added, recollecting himself. I think you'd better not. And he did not relent, though Norman looked disappointed. Maida had already expressed her belief that her father would be buried at the suburban church, where lay her mother, and Dr. May, having been desired to seek out the will and open it, found it was so, and fixed the day and hour with Maida, who was as submissive and reasonable as possible, though much grieved that he thought she could not be present. Ethel, after going with Maida to her room at night, returned as usual to talk matters over with him, and again say how good Maida was. "'And I think Norman's coming did her a great deal of good,' said Ethel. "Ha, huh. yes,' said the doctor thoughtfully. "'She thinks so much of Mr. Rivers having been fond of him.' "'Yes,' said the doctor, he was. "'I find, in glancing over the will, which was newly made on Flora's marriage, "'that he has remembered Norman, left him a hundred pounds, "'and his portfolio of prints by Raphael. "'Has he indeed? How very kind! How much Norman will value it!' "'It is remarkable,' said Dr. May, and then, as if he could not help it, told Ethel what Mr. Rivers had said of his wishes with regard to his daughter. Ethel blushed and smiled, and looked so much touched and delighted that he grew alarmed and said, "'You know, Ethel, this must be as if it never had been mentioned.' "'What? You will not tell Norman?' "'No, certainly not, unless I see strong cause. They are very fond of each other, certainly,' but they don't know, and I don't know, whether it is not like brother and sister. I would not have either of them guess at this, or feel bound in any way. Why, Ethel, she has thirty thousand pounds, and I don't know how much more. Thirty thousand, said Ethel, her tone one of astonishment, while his had been almost of objection. It would open a great prospect, continued Dr. May complacently, with Norman's talent and such a lift as that, he might be one of the first men in England, provided he had nerve and hardness enough, which I doubt. He would not care for it, said Ethel. No, but the field of usefulness. But what an old fool I am. After all my resolutions not to be ambitious for that boy, to be set a-going by such a thing as this. Still, Norman is something out of the common way. I wonder what Spencer thinks of him. And you never mean them to hear of it? If they settle it for themselves, said Dr. May, that sanction will come in to give double value to mine. Or, if I should see poor Norman hesitating as to the inequality, I might smooth the way. But you see, Ethel, this puts us in a most delicate situation towards this pretty little creature. What her father wanted was only to guard her from fortune hunters, and if she should marry suitably elsewhere, why, we will be contented. I don't think I should be, said Ethel. She is the most winning of hummingbirds, and what we see of her now gives one double confidence in her. She is so far from the petted, helpless girl that he, poor man, would fain have made her, and she has a bright, brave temper and elastic spirits that would be the very thing for him, poor boy, with that morbid sensitiveness. He would not hurt her, and she would brighten him. It would be a very pretty thing, but we must never think about it again. If we can help it, said Ethel. Ah, I am sorry I have put it into your head, too. We shall not so easily be unconscious now, when they talk about each other in the innocent way they do. We have had a lesson against being pleased at matchmaking. But, turning away from the subject, you shall not lose your Coxmore income, Ethel. I had never thought of that, 
You have taken no fees here since we have been all one family. Well, he has been good enough to leave me five hundred pounds, and Coxmoor can have the interest, if you like. Oh, thank you, Papa. It is only its due, for I suppose that is for attendance. Personally, to myself, he has left that beautiful clod which he knew I admired so much. He has been very kind. But, after all, we ought not to be talking of all of this. I should not have known it if I had not been forced to read the will. Well, so we are in Flora's house, Ethel. I wonder how poor dear little Maida will feel the being a guest here, instead of the mistress. I wish that boy were three or four years older. I should like to take her straight home with us. I should like to have her for a daughter. I shall always look on her as one. As a daisy, said Ethel. Don't talk of it, said Dr. May hastily. This is no time for such things. After all, I am glad that the funeral is not here. Flora and Maida might be rather overwhelmed with these three incongruous sets of relations. By their letters, those Riverses must be quite as queer a lot as George's relations. After all, if we have nothing else, Ethel, we have the best of it in regard to such relations as we have. There is Lord Gosham, said Ethel. Yes, he is Maida's guardian, as well as her brother, but he could not have her live with him. She must depend upon Flora but we shall see. Ethel felt confident that Flora would be very kind to her little sister-in-law, and yet one of those gleams of doubt crossed her, whether Flora would not be somewhat jealous of her own authority. Late the next evening, the carriage drove to the door, and George and Flora appeared in the hall. Their sisters went out to meet them, and George folded Maida in his arms, and kissing her again and again, called her his poor dear little sister, and wept bitterly, and even violently. Flora stood beside Ethel, and said, in a low voice, that poor George felt it dreadfully, and then came forward, touched him gently, and told him that he must not overset Maida, and, drawing her from him, kissed her, and said what a grievous time this had been for her, and how sorry they had been to leave her so long, but they knew she was in the best hands. Yes, I should have been so sorry you had been overtired, I was quite well off, said Maida. And you must look on us as your home, added Flora. How can she, thought Ethel. This is taking possession and making Maida a guest already. However, Maida did not seem to feel it. She replied by caresses and turned again to her brother. Poor George was by far the most struck down of all the mourners, and his whole demeanor gave his new relations a much warmer feeling towards him than they could ever have hoped to entertain. His gentle, refined father had softly impressed his duller nature, and his want of attention and many extravagances came back upon him acutely now, in his changed home. He could hardly bear to look at his little orphan sister, and lavished every mark of fondness upon her. Nor could he endure to sit at the bottom of his table, but when they had gone into dinner, he turned away from the chair and hid his face. He was almost like a child in his want of self-restraint and with all Dr. May's kind, soothing manner, he could not bring him to attend to any of the necessary questions as to arrangements, and was obliged to refer to Flora, whose composed good sense was never at fault. Ethel was surprised to find that it would be a great distress to Maida to part with her until the funeral was over, though she would hardly express a wish lest Ethel should be needed at home. As soon as Flora perceived this, she begged her sister to stay, and again Ethel felt unpleasantly that Maida might have seen, 
if she had chosen, that Flora took the invitation upon herself. So, while Dr. May, with George, Norman, and Tom, went to London, she remained, though not exactly knowing what good she was doing, unless by making the numbers rather less scanty, but both sisters declared her to be the greatest comfort possible, and when Maida shut herself up in her own room, where she had long learned to seek strength in still communing with her own heart, Flora seemed to find it a relief to call her sister to hers, and talk over ordinary subjects, in a tone that struck on Ethel's ears as a little incongruous, but then Flora had not been here from the first, and the impression could not be as strong. She was very kind, and her manner, when with others, was perfect from its complete absence of affectation, but, alone with Ethel, there was a little complacency sometimes betrayed, and some curiosity whether her father had read the will. Ethel allowed what she had heard of the contents to be extracted from her, and it certainly did not diminish Flora's secret satisfaction in being somebody. She told the whole history of her visits, first how cordial Lady Leonora Langdale had been, and then how happy she had been at Glenbrocken. The old lord and lady, and Marjorie, all equally charming in their various ways, and Norman Ogilvy so good a son, and so highly thought of in his own country. Did I tell you, Ethel, that he desired to be remembered to you? Yes, you said so. What has Corley done with it? continued Flora, seeking in her dressing case. She must have put it away with my brooches. Oh, no, here it is. I have been looking for Cairngorm specimens in a shop, saying I wanted a brooch that you would wear, when Norman Ogilvy came riding after the carriage, looking quite hot and eager. He had been to some other place and hunted this one up. Is it not a beauty? It was one of the round bruise brooches, of dark pebble, with a silver fern leaf lying across it, the dots of small cairngorm stones. The Glenbrocken badge, you know, continued Flora. Ethel twisted it about in her fingers and said, Was not it meant for you? It was to oblige me, if you choose so to regard it, said Flora, smiling. He gave me no injunction, but, you see, you must wear it now. I shall not wear colored brooches for a year. Ethel sighed. She felt as if her black dress ought, perhaps, to be worn for a nearer cause. She had a great desire to keep that Glenbrocken brooch, and surely it could not be wrong. To refuse it would be much worse, and would only lead to Flora's keeping it, and not caring for it. Then it is your present, Flora? If you like better to call it so, my dear, I find Norman Ogilvy is going abroad in a few months. I think we ought to ask him here on his way. Flora, I wish you would not talk about such things. Do you really and truly, Ethel? Certainly not, at such a time as this, said Ethel. Flora was checked a little and sat down to write to Marjorie Ogilvy. Shall I say you like the brooch, Ethel? she asked presently. Say what is proper, said Ethel impatiently. You know what I mean in the fullest sense of the word. Do I? said Flora. I mean, said Ethel, that you may say, simply and rationally, that I like the thing, but I won't have it said as a message, or that I take it as his present. Very well, said Flora. The whole affair is simple enough, if you would not be so conscious, my dear. Flora, I can't stand your calling me my dear. I am very much obliged to you, said Flora, laughing, more than she would have liked to be seen, but recalled by her sister's look. Ethel was sorry at once. Flora, I beg your pardon. 
I did not mean to be cross, only please don't begin about that. Indeed, I think you had better leave out about the brooch altogether. No one will wonder at your passing it over in such a return as this. You are right, said Flora thoughtfully. Ethel carried the brooch to her own room and tried to keep herself from speculating what had been Mr. Ogilvy's views in procuring it and whether he remembered showing her at Woodstock which sort of fern was his badge and how she had abstained from preserving the piece shut up in her guidebook. Maida's patient sorrow was the best remedy for proneness to such musings. How happy poor little Maida had been! The three sisters sat together that long day and Ethel read to the others and by and by went to walk in the garden with them, till, as Flora was going in, Maida asked, "'Do you think it would be wrong for me to cross the park to see that little burn girl, as Mr. Wilmot is away today, and she has no one to go to her?' Flora could see no reason against it, and Maida and Ethel left the garden, and traversed the green park in its quiet home beauty, not talking much, except that Maida said, "'Well, I think there is quite as much sweetness as sadness in this evening.' "'Because of this calm autumn sunset beauty?' said Ethel. "'Look at the golden light coming in under the branches of the trees.' "'Yes,' said Meta. "'One cannot help thinking how much more beautiful it must be.' The two girls said no more, and came to the cottage, where so much gratitude was expressed at seeing Miss Rivers that it was almost too much for her. She left Ethel to talk, and only said a few soft little words to her sick scholar, who seemed to want her voice and smile to convince her that the small mournful face under all that black crape belonged to her own dear bright teacher it is odd said maida as they went back it is seeing other people that makes one know it is all sad and altered it seems so bewildering though they are so kind i know what you mean said ethel one ought not to wish it to go on because there are other people and other duties said maida but quietness is so peaceful do you know ethel i shall always think of those two first days before anybody came with you and dr may as something very very precious she said at last with the tears rising i am sure i shall said ethel i don't know how it is but there is something even in this affliction that makes it like a strange sort of happiness said Meta musingly i know what it is said ethel that he is so very good said maida reverently yes said ethel almost rebuked for the first thought namely that it was because maida was so very good it does make one feel more confidence said maida it is good for me to have been in trouble repeated ethel yes said maida i hope it is not wrong or unkind in me to feel it for i think dear papa would wish it but i do not feel as if miss him always as i shall the spring of life were gone from me i don't think it can for i know no more pain or trouble can reach him and there is don't you think ethel that i may think so a special care for the orphan like a compensation and there is hope and work here and i am very thankful how much worse it would have been if george had not been married dear flora will you tell her ethel how really i do wish her to take the command of me tell her it will be the greatest kindness in the world to make me useful to her i will said ethel and please tell her that i am afraid i may forget and take upon me as if i were still lady of the house tell her i do not mean it 
and I hope that she will check it. I think there is no fear of her forgetting that, said Ethel, regretting the words before they were out of her mouth. I hope I shall not, said Meta. If I do, I shall drive myself away to stay with Aunt Leonora, and I don't want to do that at all. So please to make Flora understand that she is had, and I am ready to be hand and foot, and Meta's bright smile shone out with the pleasure of a fresh and loving service. Ethel understood the force of her father's words, that it was a brave, vigorous spirit. Dr. May came back with George and stayed to dinner, after which he talked over business with Flora, whose sagacity continually amazed him, and who undertook to make her husband understand and do what was needed. Maida, meanwhile, cross-questioned her brother on the pretty village by the Thames, of which she had a fond, childish remembrance, and heard from him of the numerous kind messages from all her relations. There were various invitations, but George repeated them unwillingly. "'You won't go, Maida,' he said. "'It would be a horrid nuisance to part with you. "'As long as you think so, dear George, "'when I am in your way or Flora's, that will never be. "'I say, Flora, will she ever be in our way?' "'No, indeed. "'Maida and I understand that,' said Flora, looking up. "'Well,' I suppose Bruce can't be trusted to value the books and prints. Dr. May thought it a great relief that Maida had a home with Flora, for, as he said to Ethel as they went home together, certainly, except Lord Cosham, I never saw such an unpresentable crew as their relations. You should have heard the boys afterwards. There was Master Tom turning up his eaten nose at them and pronouncing that there never were such a set of snobs and Norman taking him to task, as I never heard him do before, telling him that he would never have urged his going to Eton if he had thought it would make him despise respectable folks, probably better than himself, and that this was the last time in the world for such observations, whereat poor Tommy was quite annihilated, for a word from Norman goes farther with him than a lecture from anyone else. Well, I think Norman was right as to the unfitness of the time, so he was, but we had a good deal of them waiting in the inn parlor. People make incongruities when they will have such things done in state. It could not be helped here, to be sure, but I always feel, at a grand undertaker's display like this, that, except the service itself, there is little to give peace or soothing. I hate what makes a talk. Better be little folk." One would rather think of our own dear cloister and those who cared so much, said Ethel. Ah, you were happy to be there, said Dr. May. But it all comes to the same. Pausing, he looked from the window, then signed to Ethel to do the same. Orion glittered in the darkness. One may sleep sound without the lullaby, said Dr. May, and the waves. Oh, don't, Papa. You don't give up hope. I believe we ought, Ethel. Don't tell her, but I went to the Admiralty today. And what did you hear there? Great cause for fear, but they do not give up. My poor Margaret, but those stars tell us they are in the same hand. End of Part 2, Chapter 12 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona